I have really been excited to be in the teachings of Jesus for our Sermon on the Mount series because this is the, this is the stuff. This is unfiltered. The person who is behind the law of God, Jesus Christ, the word of God, telling us exactly what the intention of the law is. It doesn't get much better than that. So for however many hundreds of years people misunderstood, misinterpreted, and told each other the law of God, Jesus came and, and he narrowed it like a laser beam, saying this is what God meant by this, and this is how you should think about it. And I love being in the teachings of Jesus because he is the one that we are called to be disciples of. Discipleship means you know, becoming like the master. And so as we listen to Jesus' commands as we hear him inspiring us towards a life of deep, deeper following of him and obedience to him, you know, we become the disciples that God's called us to be, uh, to pe- be people that, are, that look uh, like Jesus in this world. So these teachings are really how we get there. We get there by putting these teachings of Jesus into practice, not just being people that know what the word says, but people that do it. And so <clears throat> it's, it's really a time for us as a church to aim high, to aim high, towards the ideals that God has called us to in Christ, the words of Jesus and what he's called us to. Um, Not a half-hearted devotion, but a full-hearted devotion and understanding of Jesus' will for us. And the dream, God's dream for each person, is that they would become a fully devoted disciple of his. That is the end of every Christian. So that's why God called you, so that you'd become a disciple of his and a follower of his. And, uh, And he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, it says in the Word. This is how we get there, through hearing his teachings and putting them into practice. So I've been praying over our church, and I invite you to join with me in this prayer, that God would bring people to new life who have a desire to know and follow Jesus Christ. And, I, and I, my second part of that prayer has been that we, would, we who are already here would be a people who desire to know and follow Jesus Christ. Many times those of us who have been in the church for a long time we sort of are sidetracked, and we actually don't do what Jesus says. But, the, but I'm praying that God puts that desire in our heart to follow him, to take even these hard teachings of Christ, put them into practice, and that he would draw a community of people to himself from our community who want to follow and know Jesus. You know, my, my desire is that we would, each of us, be called great in God's kingdom. And Jesus says that greatness is teaching, is obeying his commands, and teaching other people to do the same. You know, that's greatness in God's eyes. And really what we're doing is becoming the humanity that God always dreamed of. We're becoming the people that God's always dreamed us to be, but that sin tried to, uh, tried to derail. That's what we're doing when we put his commands into practice. We're becoming uh, the people that God dreamed of in the beginning. And so that's a, that's, a, that's a really exciting thought to me. So this morning, you know, once again, we have Jesus. He's on the mountain and he is sitting in the same posture of Moses when he came down the mountain uh, with the Ten Commandments as the lawgiver. And Jesus is giving the new law. He's giving the, the, uh, the best explanation of what God intended in the law of Moses. And, and uniquely, because he is God's word, and he was with God in the beginning, and he was with God when he wrote the laws on the, on the tablets on the, on the mountain, he's authoritative and people can ask him questions, and he can say, well, this is what we meant when we wrote that. I think that's such a cool thought. Jesus, the living word of God, full authority, giving us the, the teachings, interacting with our questions, and uh, still, there's many uh, questions we have, and we interact with Jesus in that same way. 
but the word from the beginning, giving us the deeper meaning of God's law. And today, we'll be looking at the deeper meaning of God's law in terms of adultery, in terms of, uh, of lust and marriage. These are going to be some areas that Jesus wants to uh, set some new standards for us in, if we might be people of God. So this is a high mark, and this is the deeper meaning of, of these things. The standards are, are, are high. Jesus tells us, aim high. To really seek God's ideal and his original intention as we look at these things. And he also says, to strive for God's ideal with everything that's inside of us. To the extreme, make this your practice. The reality is, as we hear teachings from Jesus, even from Jesus himself, the author of, of the law, um, as we hear these teachings, built into them is the same options that the original audience had to listen and say amen and keep following or to turn away and walk the other direction. We have that same option as followers of Jesus today. And the reality is, some people will hear what Jesus says and they will dismiss it. Um, they'll make, they'll make a, some kind of allowance for that in their mind, they'll dismiss it and walk away. Whether they continue sitting in church is another matter. They might continue to stay in church, but they, in their heart, they're not going to be following Jesus uh, in this way. And other people are going to hear it, they're going to be convicted, and they're going to follow Jesus further. So built into Jesus' teaching is always this choice that Jesus gives each of his children to either obey and follow or not. And Jesus did not chase after people that turned around um, he was, he was only one person. He was a, a busy traveling uh, minister. He didn't really chase after people. He let, he let people walk away even sad or troubled, and the, and, but he didn't uh, deviate from his, what he had said, you know? So I think that uh, Jesus, the good shepherd, now in Holy Spirit form, being that he's not limited by space and time, I think he strives with us and goes after us uh, when we walk away. But that initial decision is ours. Are we going to stay with Jesus or are we going to walk away? And in this morning's text, we're going to get this unfiltered, deeper understanding of what God's true intention from his law is in the areas of sexual purity and marriage. It's a really beautiful thing to see God's true intentions for love, for marriage, uh, and for family uh, in this passage. And I think it's why everyone desires you know, when, when they're young, you know, and, and you're in a family and you desire, whether you have it or not, you desire to be in a family where mom and dad, siblings, if you have them, where you know the adults are there to take care of you, to help direct your life towards a good place of flourishing, where we know that mom only has eyes for dad and dad only has eyes for mom. These are the things that security are made of and where, where we feel that nothing can shake that family unit that God's given us. We all have that desire in us. We long for the stability of steadfast love, and this is a reflection of our desire for our relationship with, with God, who is the God of steadfast love. We desire this as children in our families, whether we can articulate it or not. And it's also what we want for our own marriages, you know, the teaching of, of Jesus here. We want to be in a, a marriage where it's, we're committed for life, to someone who will never leave us or forsake us, no matter what, who will display for us a picture of God's steadfast love, what the Bible calls God's covenant love towards us. 
We desire to be married, to have someone who only has eyes for us, who does not wander into leering at other people or entertaining desires in their hearts for anyone else but us. We long for someone to accept and to hold us even when we are at our very worst and our least attractive state. We want, we want that covenant faithfulness uh, as we start out in marriage. And this is, a, this is at least a small part of why God has such tough words for lust in marriage and such stringent teachings about the destruction wrought by certain things. And with this in mind, let's read this, this text, uh, Adultery, in, uh, in verse 27 of Matthew 5. We're going to read through uh, to verse 32. Jesus speaking says, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Just as last week we, we talked about murder and Jesus redefining murder as being anger. And thus, you know, an angry person who gets to the point of calling other people fools or has contempt in their heart towards other people, has committed murder in their heart before God. This week we see a similar idea from Jesus. Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, the seventh commandment of the, old, of, uh, the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman, and we could flip that, anyone who looks at a man lustfully has already committed adultery with him or her in his heart. So just as Jesus redefined murder, he now redefines adultery according to the condition of one's heart, not simply the action that everyone knows is adultery. So to, the, so to the one who holds lust in their heart towards a person who is not their lawfully married husband or wife, that person, says Jesus, is an adulterer. Jesus' original audience would have considered intimate relations with someone other than their spouse to be adultery, which is what was taught in the law of Moses. There would have been no question about that. But just as with murder, Jesus redefines adultery as a deeper uh, place, a deeper level, so that just as anger and contempt is murder, so now lust towards someone who is not your spouse is adultery. And this is a hard teaching and a high bar that Jesus calls us to. And in this case, we're wondering to ourselves as we read this, how seriously does Jesus want me to take this redefinition and this new command to not lust after somebody? And we are taught by Jesus himself the measures we should take when he says that we are to metaphorically remove the source of our lustful desires. Here's what it says. If your right eye causes you to stumble, this is in the context of lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And Jesus says these things 
directly after redefining adultery to be lusting after a person who is not your spouse. So it really couldn't be more clear uh, that the follower of Jesus, who's not going to turn, turn around and walk away from him, they're supposed to take extreme measures to deal with this issue. Many times people don't take this sin seriously, just like they don't take anger seriously. It's to their detriment. We must deal with sin severely. And particularly the sins that Jesus says and emphasizes in his teachings. Because if we don't deal with these things severely, they will deal severely with us, has been said. As I said last week, we, we hate to think about this, but we become a little, little by little over time, different types of people altogether, depending on how we train ourselves. It's not just that people, you know, it's not just chemical imbalances that changes a person uh, in, in their personality. There, there are choices we make that have ramifications, and we, we change over time depending on how we act. And just as holding anger and contempt in our hearts changes us into different people, people who are, are angry and people who are murderous in our hearts, so lust, if entertained, will change us into different people as well. And the change is not a positive change. This is not something you want. Over time, as people lust, according to Jesus, they become in danger of the fires of hell. That's a hard word. Of use, uselessness and brokenness and damage to themselves and to other people, suitable for nothing. So Jesus advises us strongly to deal with our lust issues head on, recognizing that it is actually adultery, and cutting out whatever is needed in order to take responsibility for it and rid ourselves of it. This is Jesus' word to us. Deal with it in an extreme way, you know, up to, but not including, gouging out your right eye and chopping off your right hand. I mean, I'm assuming that that's not what Jesus wants us to do literally, or there'd be a lot of eyeless, handless people in here right now. But up to and including, Jesus says, an extreme, take extreme measures to deal with lust, or it will deal with you in a terrible way in your life. Jesus does not participate in his teaching. He doesn't participate in his culture or our culture's unjust and chauvinistic ideas when it comes to lust and adultery. Jesus thoroughly places responsibility on the man or the woman as individuals for their own lust problem, not on how other people dress or other circumstances or how things are going in the marriage. He doesn't talk about those things. He says, it's your responsibility we, and and Jesus, Jesus doesn't allow us to wiggle out from this responsibility. Further, Jesus does not participate in the idea that lust and adultery is okay or somehow more normal for men. You know, men, boys will be boys. It's all locker room talk. Jesus doesn't give those kinds of excuses, but it makes people take personal responsibility for their own heart issues. And so he says, if you don't deal with these things, you'll be in danger of the fires of hell, so we'd better deal with them in an extreme way, each person taking responsibility for their own sin. Jesus' point in talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands uh, is clear. It's just an extreme thing that you do to deal with an extreme problem. That you, may or might, you, you might not have walked in agreeing that this is an extreme problem, but Jesus is telling you that it is. That's something that will destroy you from within. Part of, part of following Jesus, we talk about it being a walk of faith. 
sometimes we just don't see things as they are or feel them as they are. So we think, you know, anger in the heart, that's not so bad as long as they don't hurt somebody. It doesn't hurt anybody. Lust in my heart, no one knows about it. doesn't hurt anybody. So if we're going to be people of faith, we have, to, we have to by faith say, God knows better. And even though I'm jaded and screwed up from living in the world that we live in and having the media that we have and having unfettered internet access and whatever it might be, we walk by faith in God's word that this is a serious issue that is a matter of life and death, spiritually speaking. We walk by faith, not always by sight. And we must deal with sin in extreme ways. I'm a, obviously a man, for those that don't know. For the most part, I know, the, I know the struggles and the ways godly men around me have dealt with this issue of lust and sought to escape its grasp and to hold on to love and respect above those things. It comes down to the fact that typically men share their struggles with other men, and so I know the struggles of men. I know how they, they deal with it. And when they're working on, on this issue and how they, how they kind of fight with it, you know, my wife and other women have other conversations I'm not privy to, which I'm fine with. Uh, where, and they could tell you stories of how they've dealt with lust and, and dealt with that in their life. But for me as a man, with other godly men around me, I have seen some of the extreme ways that men have chosen to deal with lust and successfully dealt with it. And I'm sure that some of these ways are universal for both sexes. But just as extreme as gouging out an eye or chopping off a hand, I know several men who have gone without a smartphone either permanently or for an extended season, in order to display self-control. They have made a decision that if I have unfettered access on this device, it's not, it's not going to go good places. So they exercise self-control beforehand by just taking away the device. This is the equivalent of chopping off a hand or gouging out an eye in the modern world, in my opinion. It's like, why would you do that? You're, you need your calendar. There's all kinds of excuses. You need your to-do list. You need to make notes. For, you, need to, you need it for work. But I know men, several men, that have said, I take what Jesus said seriously, I'm going to walk by faith. And they have just gone without something that we consider like breathing air. And the younger that you are, the more it feels like you're breathing air uh, when, you, when, you lose your small, when you lose your smartphone. I know, I also know men who have gone on extended or even permanent fasts from movies, from YouTube, from web searches such as Google, and television, because they began to see how, even without trying to, the media that surrounds us is planting seeds in us all the time. We're passively getting stuff, and it is killing us. And so I know men that have fasted from, either permanently or, or for, uh, for a time, from certain types of media. These are courageous heroes of the faith who should be admired. Courageous men who took extreme steps to prove to themselves that they really did trust in Jesus and follow him. Many times, most of the time, these things are done in secret without anyone really knowing except for maybe one or two other people. It's, it's the equivalent of praying in a closet so that your father that sees what is unseen rewards you. And men that have chosen to do this, I've seen some amazing things. And that's agreeing with Jesus this is a serious problem and then taking a drastic measure to deal with the problem. This is amazing. And as I said before, you know, this issue of lust is not, not in, confined to one gender, but I'm only familiar with the situations I'm familiar with because I'm a man. And so these are the things I have seen. Some of these are 
universal for men and women. But, for, but one thing I know that's for sure, for both men and women, is profoundly important to share one's struggles with the issue of lust with a trusted sister or brother in Christ. Because bringing in, from the darkness into the light with God and other people, that's where God begins to set us free. Whatever happens in the darkness is in the darkness. It just erodes us over time. But when you bring it into the light with God and with other people, just a simple act of disclosing that you have a struggle, that you're not perfect. You know, believe it or not, you come to your brother or sister, i, I got to tell you something, I'm not perfect. You know, this, this requires humility. And I think this is another way in which we gouge out the eye and chop off the hand. I think that exposing to a brother or sister that we're struggling, depending on you know, our gender for appropriateness, sharing that, being humble and saying, I'm not perfect, I struggle with this, I'm currently struggling with this, I need your help. This is an example of that, uh, that I think is very practical for men and women. Bringing what is in the darkness into the light with God and others. It's amazing how the, the energy that darkness requires, the light kind of dispels it. Just bringing a little truth, bringing a little relationship, bringing a little humility to the table, agreeing with Jesus on the seriousness of lust, and then dealing with it in a severe way. But in my personal experience of both sharing my struggle and sin with other men and being honored to be a recipient of hearing other people's confessions, uh, these activities, if put into practice over the long haul, lead to a life of freedom from sin. Because Jesus is right. Fundamentally, lust destroys... It's at the heart of adultery. But bringing lust into the light with God and others leads to light and life. So however one, those are some examples, but however one chooses to combat lust, adultery, as Jesus calls it, the biblical teaching is that we must do it in an extreme way, anything up to the point of the metaphorical gouging of eyes and chopping of hands should be in play. There is just no room in the Christ followers' life for excuses that are cult cultural or personal. There just is no place for that in our lives. We have to get it right. It should be pointed out that looking at, staring, gazing at one's spouse is encouraged, even celebrated by the Bible. If you, the, the, many people talk about how Christians are really sexually repressed and all these kinds of things. You know, the fact is that we're trying to preserve the gift of, of sexuality and love and keep it in one safe place where we have a covenant partner who's going to be there the next day and the next day and the next day. And when you die, you're going to be holding your hand on your deathbed if you're so lucky as to live for a long time. Um, but gazing, staring at one's spouse is a, is a delightful, celebrated thing in the Bible, in the Jewish world of Jesus. Song of Songs. It's a book that um, is all about men and women gazing at each other and describing what they see, but they're married. They're not leering at each other without commitment, but they are, they are loving each other and, and seeing what God's given them and enjoying this full light of the gift that God's given them. This is not what lust is like. And lust is dark. It leads to 
worse conditions the longer it's entertained. And, uh, and it must be done away with severely uh, for the person who wants to follow Jesus. And there is no, there is no I've gone too far and can't go back situation with Christianity. Our God is a redeemer. And so no matter where you've been or what you've done, this whole, it applies to the whole sermon, any sermon, you know, we always have the chance to start fresh following Jesus and making those decisions that can lead to us uh, being free and really enjoying the good gifts God wants to give us. You know? So there's just two more sentences left from the Bible that we're going to read. We'll finish out today's look into Jesus' teaching. But these two sentences are kind of a doozy. This is about divorce. So in Matthew 5.31, it says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is yet another hard, strong teaching on what Jesus sees as being the permanency of marriage. And in Matthew 19, 3-11, we see the disciples just balked. They reacted. Jesus' closest people he was teaching had a very strong reaction to, to him in this teaching. Uh, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19 and then to the reaction of the disciples. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has put joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if that's the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Hard teaching for them and hard teaching for us. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. He goes on to list some categories of people to whom that word is not relevant, and that's people that are single by choice or eunuchs because of their work in the palace. But for everyone who's married or wants to be married, these words apply. Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it's been given, those who desire to be married, those who are married. So in both of our pastors, in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, as well as Matthew 19, 3, 11, Jesus reiterates the same teaching. In Jesus' day, the teachers of the law had slackened the standard. The, the authority on, 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 on uh, following God had slackened the standard of how a person could legally divorce. And in their society, as it was structured, this way of doing things hurt women immensely. Uh, many times, leaving them destitute because of the way society was set up back then. Divorcing a woman would leave her destitute. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees pointed out to Jesus that Moses permitted divorce in Deuteronomy 24, where it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, they will be divorced. That passage of Scripture, much like many passages of Scripture in our day, had been twisted and abused by the teachers of the law. 
And the interpretation of becomes displeasing to him ended up meaning in the chauvinistic minds of the original readers that a man could divorce his wife if she burned the food. This is, and so think about how the, un, the un, injustice of this. If a man becomes displeased for any and every reason, they interpreted the scripture in the most lax way possible, he could send his wife away to be dishonored, she'd already been a, a wife to somebody, and destitute on the street for any reason. So this is why Jesus is reacting so strongly to the cavalier way that people thought about marriage. Because, as he says, this is not the way God intended things to be, you guys. He appeals to creation. He appeals to the original intention. You were the word at the beginning. The word at the beginning with God. His intention was that men and women get married and stay married for life. That was his intention. Jesus comes back at them explaining the, the Deuteronomy 24, saying that Moses allowed for divorce only because of the hardness of disobedient hearts. But from the beginning, from creation, God's ideal in marriage is for life. And then he goes on to repeat what he said in Matthew 5, that if someone divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, they sin and cause sin. So Jesus' teaching for marriage, like everything else, is aim high. Aim high. Do not consider divorce an option. Just as, one, just as one is supposed to go to extreme and sincere measures to deal with lust to the point of gouging out eyes and chopping off hands, Jesus' followers are going to, to go to extreme measures to display unwavering, steadfast, covenant love with their spouse. And why would I say covenant love? Because this is the only, I can't think of any other covenant that people do. What covenants have you done lately? When you got married, you did a covenant. And it was a reflection of the covenant God made with us like we read about in Jeremiah. Um, we are supposed to display the unwavering, steadfast covenant love to our spouse, this covenant that we've made in marriage. The reason for this, according to Jesus, is that from the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We've all heard this at weddings when people are making this covenant with each other. So no matter what Moses said, no matter what Moses allowed, or more accurately, what people's hardness of heart had caused them to twist in the teachings of Moses, Jesus goes back to the beginning. Um, Marriage is to be a man and a woman for life, fused together in a covenant with one another before God that no one can separate. Unshakable. Marriage, as, it is, 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 as it's explained to us in Ephesians 5, is a picture of Christ's covenant love for the church. Every marriage is a covenant before God to another person to be faithful to that covenant as it's a mirror of Christ's covenant with us, that he made with us. I mean, wouldn't it be a terrible thing if God just became shaky in his covenant with us? Can you imagine What would be the basis of our faith if God did not keep his covenants? But God, from the beginning, from from Genesis all the way through Revelation, steadfastly, without faltering, kept his covenants, even painstakingly kept his covenants. And marriage is to be a picture of this covenant kind of love that we painstakingly, with much suffering, even at times, that we not break the covenant because it's a mirror of God's covenant that he made with us. 
and God doesn't break his covenants and never has. So like God, we are to keep this covenant with one another as married people, come what may. Jesus' highest ideal is to love one another as Christ loved the church through covenant faithfulness. And when I'm doing premarital counseling, I say, how did Christ love the church, right? This is what I say. Well, he gave his life for the church. So up to and including dying for your spouse, this is how far your covenant faithfulness is to go in God's world. So Moses' more vague teaching that came to mean, you know, give her a certificate of divorce for any and every reason. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 is only that marital, is that only marital unfaithfulness is a ground for divorce. In other words, Jesus restricts the reasons for allowing divorce to a partner breaking covenant through committing adultery on their spouse with somebody else. Now, we can and we should have a discussion about other ways that people break covenant with their spouse besides just adultery with someone outside of the marriage. There are other ways that people are unfaithful to their marriage covenants. And it's a more robust idea than it looks at first blush. There are cases of abuse, there's cases of abandonment in which people have covenants broken with them. And time will not allow that discussion here, but I simply want to say to you what Jesus gives us in his teaching, that Christians are to aim high and are not to divorce their spouse casually. Anyone who has divorce in their family or has been divorced will tell you how difficult and destructive divorce is, even if it had to happen, even if it had to happen. No one wants to divorce. No one gets married hoping for divorce. No child dreams of divorce as they play house. And many of you have been in this, in this boat. But when marriage gets tough, Jesus doesn't want us to tell ourselves it is okay with God because God wants me to be happy and I'm not happy. Jesus rightly restricts the grounds for divorce to marital unfaithfulness, demanding that his listeners, as well as ourselves as followers of Jesus, do not treat the covenant of marriage as something easily discarded. Instead, we are to hold out and hold on to our marriage covenant with both hands to the point of death, to the point of gouging out our eyes and chopping off our hands. It's that important. And I'm not advising anyone to do those things. This is a hyperbole to tell you this is real serious. I am convinced that God has grace for everyone on the spectrum of divorce and remarriage. From the unmarried to the married to the married yet miserable to the divorced to the separated, there's grace from God for people in every part of that uh, place. I'm convinced that God has something for you those of you who are married or those of you who plan to be married someday and desire to be married someday uh, in this area, if you will take his word seriously about divorce and seek to follow him, I think God has something for you. And maybe one of the things it has for you is, that is bringing brothers and sisters in Christ into your struggle if you're married. The simple act of humility, saying, you know, we're not perfect. We're surprised, everybody. Uh, the simple act of humility fa- it falls short of gouging eyes and chopping off hands, so it's completely appropriate. But it's extreme. It's big. And what Jesus wanted to do when he taught him these things is the same thing I want to do, to end a widespread, casual view of divorce that's in our culture and our Christian culture. And our Christian culture. Starting with the church. The problem is not out there almost 97.8% of the time. Problem is in here. 
So let's not point fingers out there. Let's point fingers in here. And let's come together and build each other up and help each other to follow Jesus. Julie's going to come up and close us in a worship song. But I just, I just invite you to receive grace from God. Jesus is calling us to look at his teachings about lust, look at his teachings about divorce and, and marriage, and to take them at face value and ask God how to apply them to our lives. And I'm convinced anywhere on the spectrum, from being unmarried to being divorced or remarried, there's grace for you this morning from God. If you desire to follow him, desire to throw off the things that entangle you and to just say, no, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word. So let's receive grace from God. Father God, that you would would allow us to become in this season fully devoted disciples of Christ who takes you at your word, who lives by faith, who walks in the light with you and with other people. who who exemplifies the true humanity that you died to bring about in the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to find the grace to follow you, to obey you, to love you, to love one another. Whatever you put in each heart to do in response to your word today, I pray that that would be followed through, that it would be done. It's these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.